Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have been known to Gaia and Gimbal in the Wabe, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm the student struggling to keep my eyes open at the back of class, seconds away from falling into an eternal dreamless sleep as we watch through 58 films and counting. Our benevolent king, meanwhile, is Dr. Sam Summers, a man of great power and influence, in the world of animation academia at least, and our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you? Yeah, I, I just really feel the need to make it clear more than ever that I don't write these titles for myself. <laughs> I, I, I know you probably assume that Ben does it anyway, but like, just let's really... I don't want to overstate my power and influence, is all I'm saying. <laughs> you are the king of this podcast. Without you, it would be nothing. I mean, that's true. I mean, extremely true. It would just me being sitting here going, like, I watched a Disney film. That was good, I guess. <laughs> it would be the entire show. Yeah, you, of course you're a man of great power and influence. Like, that's exactly why we're here. I think that's why 90% of the listeners are here. Screw it, 100% of the listeners. They're all here for what you have to say about these movies. Nice. I have power and influence over, over our listeners, is what you're saying. I'm an influencer, is what you're saying, yeah? In fact, maybe I should have written you up this week as Maleficent. You're the overlord exerting your uh, evil will <laughs> over all of the Disneyversity listeners, and they can't see you right now, but you do have a pretty cool crow best friend who is hanging around by your shoulder right now. That's a, a good spooky vibe. I'll tell you what, I hope I'm just not Maleficent in the sense that I put people to sleep. Because people do say, and I do this as well, like, especially my mom is always saying, oh, I love listening to you and Ben in bed. It really sends me off. It really puts me to sleep. <laughs> Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> I guess, is that a compliment-ish? Look, I fall asleep listening to podcasts and audiobooks and stuff, so I, I, I completely get that. But um, yeah, maybe we should like spice it up this week. Maybe maybe we should just start talking about something that's not Disney for like five minutes and see if your mum notices. <laughs> I'll just start talking about her and start talking, like just criticising some of her life choices and things and see if she gets back to me about that. And this is why you're Maleficent. You went for, straight for the criticising the life choices come on <laughs> and we're back to just the two of us obviously it was lovely having Ali with us last time but uh, it's just us two just the classic Disneyversity pair this week the two fabulous characters yeah <laughs> I know I, I swear that should have been the name of this podcast we should have gone for that but anyway that is enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin this time we're back in princess territory for another bangers era classic with 1959's Sleeping Beauty. 
So, Sleeping Beauty is an absolute classic. I want to say it's a tale as old as time, but we're not there yet. We're going to have to wait till the 90s till we get to uh, the tale as old as time. But for anybody who hasn't seen Sleeping Beauty, Sam, what is the plot of Sleeping Beauty? What happens in this film? King Stefan and Queen Leah, and I had to Google the second of those names because she's more like Queen doesn't get any dialogue in this movie, are holding a gala to celebrate the birth of their daughter Aurora. When the evil fairy Maleficent barges in, she's livid because she's not been invited to the party and she curses the baby to die on her 16th birthday, which is a completely measured response. Luckily, three good fairies are on hand to make it so that she'll only actually fall asleep for a hundred years instead of die. And to go one step further, they decide that the fairies are going to raise her in the forest to hide her from Maleficent. Unfortunately, the curse catches up to her on her 16th birthday, leaving her fast a kip and waiting true love's first kiss to awaken her. Ooh, you're leaving us on a cliffhanger. You're not, you're not going to tell us how this one resolves. We're just going to... That's it. She's sleeping beauty because she sleeps forever. She met that prince, right? She met the prince in the forest. They had a nice time. He comes and gives her a little smooch. And hooray, the day is saved. Sleeping Beauty wakes up. I, I just couldn't leave everyone hanging like that, Sam. I had <laughs> oh, to jump all right. In. Fair enough. I thought we could use, you know, fill in the blank whether they think this is going to end, but all right. Oh, man. Well, this is normally the point where you'd say to me, oh, so Sleeping Beauty, had you seen this one before? What were your feelings going into this one? And I'm just going to cut straight to the chase and say, I had never seen Sleeping Beauty before. And I was so excited to watch this one. This is basically the reason this podcast exists. Ah. Because I remember we said months and months ago when we started this whole thing that it kind of arose out of these conversations that you and I would have where I'd say to you, oh, this Disney film, I guess I've never really seen it. And I don't know, something's come up that I'm like, oh, I, I guess this film is different to what I thought it was or has something about it that I'd never really thought about before. And one of those earliest discussions I remember us having was about Sleeping Beauty and the fact that it is such a distinctive Disney movie that in the visual style, it stands out among all the rest of the Disney catalogue. And I'd never thought about that before. To me, it was just like another Disney princess movie. And I'd never got round to seeing it. I don't think we had this one on VHS when I was growing up, or it's not one that I really watched at all. So I was heading completely into the unknown with this. Oh, did that accidentally, but I'm going to roll with it while we're on a Disney Princess Week into the unknown. So I was so excited to watch this movie and to get to this one as we talk through all the films, because, yeah, Sleeping Beauty, we're in the bangers era, and this is a banger. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, you sent me some excited texts while you were watching it, so I kind of managed to gauge your opinion of that. Yeah, yeah. You get lots of texts while I'm watching these films, <laughs> especially when we're in the package era and it was like the ventriloquist dummies popping up. <laughs> you got lots of messages from me to say, what the hell is this film? But yeah, this was more positive text messages. Um, what does this one mean to you? Does Sleeping Beauty like hold a place for you? Yeah, again, it wasn't one that I watched when I was a kid at all. I don't think we had this whatsoever. If I did watch it, I can barely remember it. But this was sort of in a similar way to you, albeit much earlier in my life, when I was in my kind of mid to late teens, getting into the idea of revisiting these movies. This is one that you would read about on the internet all the time as being one of the best. And like you, in my mind, 
it had been kind of lumped together with especially Snow White and Cinderella as just, oh, it's one of the princess movies. But when you actually watch it, or when you even just look at a, a single frame of it, any frame from anywhere in the movie, it's like, these are three completely different movies, and especially Sleeping Beauty is one that, for various reasons, totally stands apart. So it became the holy grail for me, and because it was in the Disney vault... It was actually quite, you know, they had the Disney Vault system whereby certain DVDs would be discontinued for periods of time, meaning that if you wanted to watch them right now, you had to pay a lot of money on eBay. And I did drop probably too much money, like somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 quid as, as, a, as a kid. Ooh, that's as a, a lot of money as a kid. Yeah, I mean, I even was now. Like, like maybe 17 maybe, so like a teenager, and I, I, it properly saved up to get a Blu-ray of Sleeping Beauty off eBay, and it was obviously a very, very good financial decision indeed. Had I known that I could pay six quid to watch all the Disney movies <laughs> on Disney Plus back then, maybe I would have held off, but... Here's a question for you. You buy lots of random, out-of-print, obscure, foreign-language animated movies for your job, for your profession. Also, I think just as an excuse in your own life. What's the most you've paid for some weird out-of-print DVD? And what was it? That's a really good question. I don't think I've ever gone higher than 40 quid for, like, one movie. But I've spent in the region of, like, 30-ish quid on a Blu-ray of the Gumby movie. Gumby, if you don't know, is, like, an obscure... Well, I think he's obscure in Britain, but very famous in America, like, claymation character from, like, the 60s. And I bought the Gumby movie on Blu-ray, and it comes in a box in the shape of Gumby's head. <laughs> I've seen the Gumby Blu-ray. It's a thing of beauty. It's incredible. I got obsessed with Gumby from just seeing that DVD case. And then when I saw what actual Gumby looked like, I was really disappointed in comparison He's not as cute as the DVD in the shape of his head. Much less cute. I recently spent about 20 quid on a DVD of a stop-motion animated musical that Green Day made in the early 2000s about the Manson family murders. That was a horrible, horrible film, and I don't recommend anybody watch it. That sounds terrible. Was that for a specific course or something, or was that just like, I guess I should see this film? It's for a project that I'm working on about like the history of stop motion animation. So it falls very. It, it, I, I wouldn't say it was a significant movie in that history, <laughs> but um, I, and then today I spent forty quid on a box set of every Mr. Magoo cartoon. He's like a cartoon character from the fifties whose main deal is that he's blind, and I only bought it because it had the feature film Mr. Magoo's One Thousand and One Arabian Nights. So. In a sense, I did just spend like 40 quid on one Mr. Magoo movie. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, who knows, maybe that'll come in handy by the time we get to Aladdin. Maybe that can be an investment for this podcast as well Mm. as whatever the hell reason you bought that. that Oh, we we could do a separate podcast where we watch every Mr. Magoo short called Magooniversity. And the only thing is, everybody who listens to it has to pay £40 on eBay for a Blu-ray box set (laughs) to be able to watch along with us. We're like, none of these films are easily available. Anyway, anyway, I'm I'm fascinated, but I'm getting off the point. Uh, Something we just talked about was that, yeah, this is a Disney princess movie. For me, I only realised as we were talking through Cinderella when you were like, there are only three Disney princess movies until you get to the Renaissance era, which I completely hadn't realised. So this is our last princess movie for a while. But it's come up in previous weeks that obviously Snow White and Cinderella were both huge hits for the studio. So why do you think they went back to the princess well at this point in time? Were they always planning to do more princess movies? Well, I 
don't know exactly why they went back to a princess narrative, but I do know that this went into production in 1951, so a year after Cinderella came out and was a massive success. So we talked when we talked about Cinderella that one of the main reasons why that was a success, or at least something that was really foregrounded in the promotional campaign, was that it was seen as a follow-up to Snow White. So it feels like maybe this movie was put into production as a response to that, thinking, oh, well, we've done it two times. Let's see if we can do it a third. And so this one began way back in 51, then. It comes out in 1959, and it comes out four years after Lady and the Tramp. There's a big old gap between the last two movies. So what was that long wait all about? Obviously, this is an incredibly visually beautiful and lavish film. Was it just that it took that long for them to craft this work of art? Depending who you ask, there are different reasons for this. I mean, this did have a long period of production. Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland both had long histories. We talked about that because they were in development before the war, but they were shelved in the 1940s, whereas Sleeping Beauty had this like nine-year period of unbroken development and production, which is the longest that they'd spent on one film. The official kind of Disney Studio version generally suggests that this was a big opulent passion project that just took years to perfect that they were trying so hard to get this animation exactly right in this very unique idiosyncratic style that a lot of the animators weren't used to so for that reason everything took a lot longer than it normally would because a lot of these animators these draftsmen are having to relearn a new style of, of character design really these characters don't look or move the same as snow white or cinderella which we might talk a bit about later on However, the actual animators who worked on the film, in particular members of the Nine Old Men, have suggested that it was also because Walt was just too busy. We talked, when we talked about Lady and the Tramp, about how during this period, Walt is hosting the TV show every week. He is producing really major, big budget live action feature films. He is building and developing and promoting Disneyland. He didn't have the time to spend on these features. And I don't think Lady and the Tramp was set back by that too much, but according to the animators, Sleeping Beauty was. They could not get Walt into meetings to discuss the story and the look of this film, and they needed Walt's go-ahead to move forward with some of these decisions. So the real answer is probably somewhere in between both of these factors, both Walt's general absence and the scale of the project. But either way big long gap to leave between two of these movies yeah it makes me feel so lucky that we can just go yep play next on disney plus we don't have to wait four years anymore but it certainly was worth the wait and something that you were talking about there was that yeah the visual style of this is so different the characters look different it's once again in cinemascope like lady and the tramp was it feels very very detailed it feels like there's lots of planes of animation happening maybe more so than in other disney films we've watched so far so what sort of visual innovations were happening at the studio at this point were they having to make technology to make this film possible or how are they tweaking their Disney style? How would you describe the changes that are happening here? I don't think they really had to develop any new technology. I think certainly there's some incredibly sophisticated multiplane shots. The last time we've seen that kind of ambition from them is really in some of those establishing shots in Pinocchio, maybe some of those establishing shots in Bambi. Yeah, shout out to Bambi. (laughs) This is a big leap up in terms of how many planes we've got on our multiplane camera. And then also the shape of the thing means that we need to use different kinds of camera, different kinds of photography to capture these images in this aspect ratio. But the real innovations that were going on weren't technological, but were rooted in design. 
So Mary Blair is moved on by this point. She's still alive. That sounded like she'd passed away. But <laughs> Mary Blair has moved on to freelance projects. It seems to have been an amicable split and she did come back to Disney to design It's a Small World for Disneyland in the 1960s. But Walt has assigned a new designer to this picture, a guy called Avond Earl. So he was a background painter on some of the earlier features and some of the earlier shorts, including a film that I've mentioned previously called Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom, which was directed by Ward Kimball, one of the most aesthetically idiosyncratic of the nine old men and this is a short that looks nothing like your typical Disney fair. It's very flat and it's very geometric and it's very modern with a capital N. It taps into mid-century modernist design aesthetics which were already being picked up by smaller animation studios like United Productions of America which was staffed by various Disney animators who left following the strikes and like designers like Maurice Noble, who did the backgrounds for the Looney Tunes cartoons. So Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom, and in a sense, Sleep and Beauty can be seen as the big budget Disney studio trying their hand at these modernist aesthetics that they've resisted in their animation for so long. He was influenced by Central European Renaissance painters, he was influenced by medieval manuscripts and tapestries, and one of the earliest diktats that Walt laid down for this movie was... What we want from this is a moving illustration. We want a moving tapestry, and I don't care how long it takes. There's another reason why maybe it took it took a bit longer, because Walt did not care how long it was going to take. So you see that influence here, right? It's like a medieval tapestry. It's like a Renaissance painting, one of those huge Renaissance landscapes populated densely with characters. Completely, and the tapestry thing makes sense as well, because with it being cinemascope, the screen is wide, it looks like a canvas of a tapestry. And the, the, the way that the cinemascope aspect ratio affects how we receive this film is different to how it works in Lily and the Tramp, because in that movie, I argued last time that it worked to kind of domesticate the action, it worked to put you at the view of a dog, so that you're getting this wide angle view of the ground, of like people's feet, etc. Here it does the opposite, it makes the scope gigantic, it really broadens it out, and yeah, makes it look like a tapestry. And We also talked last time about how CinemaScope affected how the animators and the layout artists blocked out the scene and arranged the action, and that is way more the case here, because again, in keeping with both the influence of these tapestries and the more modernist aesthetic, it's much flatter in terms of the way the action plays out, it's operating primarily on a two-dimensional plane. Characters move side to side way more often than they move forwards and backwards. And we also get more characters on screen at once, including in some of these establishing shots for this film where you've got probably ten times as many moving characters on screen as you've ever had in an animated film before. And because this film does look so different to any other Disney movie, were the studio nervous about making something that, I guess that you can feel that there is some Disney influence there, but yeah, how were they feeling about making a Disney movie that doesn't necessarily look or feel like a typical Disney movie? Well, a lot of the animators weren't 100% happy with this, and we do need a I think if you've been listening to the podcast for this long, you've probably realised this, but there's a big difference between what an animator does and what a designer does. Some of the animators, some of the nine old men are designing these characters, but there are aesthetic choices coming from places other than the people who are actually tasked with animating them and putting them on screen. So when faced with something like this, with an aesthetic that they've been told they have to mimic, 
that can seem quite constraining to an animator or like quite an insurmountable challenge for someone who's been used to working in a certain way. And you can see that if you compare what Mary Blair did with what actually ended up on screen, increasingly, I think, in the films that she worked on, the animators weren't really paying attention to the designs that they were being given by her. And Walt was getting frustrated with this, so he said, for years and years I've been hiring Mary Blair to design the styling of a feature, but by the time it's finished, there's hardly a trace of her original style left. This time, Earl is style and sleep and beauty, and that's the way it's going to be. So he was putting his foot down saying, we are not moving away from the designs, no matter what. And they said, okay, well, you're going to have your film in four years then. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, well, this is such a good one. I cannot wait to discuss it in full. So should we hop in? Should we do this thing? Let's do it, baby. Let's go to sleep, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can't wait to go to sleep. <laughs> We've spoken a lot in previous weeks of how a lot of these recent Disney movies begin with a big old choral outburst, and we don't get that this time. This one begins with a fanfare. I liked them mixing it up, but there's lots of familiar elements in here. We've got a live-action book opening up. Classic Disney, we had that right at the beginning with Snow White. It feels like not just a Disney trope, but like a Disney fairy tale princess trope as well. And in terms of what this is drawing from, we learn from the beginning that this is adapted from Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet. I didn't know that Sleeping Beauty was a Tchaikovsky ballet. I'm very uncultured in that sense, but is the music here famous? Will people know this music if they're a classical music head, as we've discussed in previous weeks? I think so. I mean, my partner is the biggest Tchaikovsky head going, and she (laughs) is into some of the bops from this movie. I think even she would say that she came to them first through the movie Sleep and Beauty, though, so I think Disney has managed to colonise most of those melodies for a lot of people. So yeah, this was based on Tchaikovsky's Sleep and Beauty Ballet, but it was rearranged by George Bruns, who was the composer who worked on most of these Disney movies in this period, because, you know, Sleep and Beauty is a fairly standard story, but the Disney movie isn't... The story isn't adapted from the ballet. The story's more adapted from, well, as we'll see, somewhat loosely adapted from the Charles Perrault retelling of the fairy tale. So, Bruns has actually had to be quite creative with how he uses the score. Disney decided about halfway through production that he wanted the Tchaikovsky score. So he said, alright, this is what we're doing, you're going to be adapting this. And Bruns was inventive with how he distributed these melodies throughout the picture. How they're used in the film doesn't necessarily match up with how they're used in the ballet. For example, one of my favourite pieces is the tune that plays when Maleficent has hypnotised Aurora to lure her towards the spinning wheel whereby she's going to prick her finger and die. And it's very kind of coy and seductive and lilting, but it's punctuated with these big stabs, and I think it fits that scene perfectly. It's kind of like... Da, 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 da. that's not how it goes but that's that's like how it goes it's, a, it's like Tenacious D that's not Tchaikovsky but it's, it's, it's a tribute <laughs> this is just a tribute it was like Tchaikovsky was in the room Sam and in the actual ballet that soundtrack's a very different scene at the end of the Tchaikovsky ballet much like in a Shrek movie everyone comes together and have a, has a big party and all the characters from all the other fairy tales come in and dance I believe, 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 I believe. <laughs> exactly. That'll wake my mum up. And yeah. that piece of music soundtracks a dance performed by none other than Puss in Boots at the end of the Tchaikovsky Ballet. So totally different. 
a totally different tone, really, when married with this new context of a funny cat performing it at a party, but Bruns manages to reappropriate to make it something so sinister. And so in terms of the music then, we get a recurring song here that happens right at the beginning of the movie, kind of like Lovely Bella Note in Lady and the Tramp. It's like a recurring presence through the film, and that is the song Once Upon a Dream. Is that drawn at all from the Tchaikovsky, or is that a pure Disney creation? No, that melody is from the Tchaikovsky, and in fact... That's actually how Tchaikovsky got into the film, because Disney hired a group of songwriters to write songs for the movie. One of the songs they wrote was based on the Once Upon a Dream, what became the Once Upon a Dream melody from the ballet. And Walt liked it so much that he fired those songwriters and hired George Bruns to readapt the whole (laughs) Tchaikovsky score. So, suffering from success is how I would describe that. (laughs) Being just a little too good at your job. Yeah, that is brutal. Those poor guys. But Once Upon a Dream is the only real show piece in the movie, right? We'll get to the actual sequence in a bit, but that's the only banger from this Bangers era Disney movie. However, unlike a lot of Disney's other movies from this period, the music is constant all the way through, and there is singing, non-diegetic singing, all the way through on the score as well, which I think does give it this real balletic or operatic feel. Yeah, definitely. It lends this sense of grandeur to the whole thing. I think everything about this film feels grand. From the aspect ratio, to the way that it sounds, to the lavish design style, everything about it feels huge. Now, the film obviously begins with the birth of baby Aurora, but seeing she's not really a character in this thing until later down the line when she's grown up a bit, I want to talk about the character that made the biggest impression on me, which of course is Maleficent. This is an outright classic Disney villain. And she enters the story very early on. Aurora is a baby. She's having gifts bestowed on her by three fairies in the castle, in the kingdom. And Maleficent just rocks up and says, screw this baby. (laughs) She puts a curse straight on the baby, surrounded with purple smoke, dramatic as hell, camp as anything. Oh man, I love Maleficent in this movie. What an incredible villain. So Maleficent has really ascended to the position of the Disney villain over the years, I think. I'll talk a little bit more about some specific examples of that in Last and Legacy, but up to this point, Ben, can you see, watching this movie, why she has become such an icon? Because presumably you were familiar with this character before you saw the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, especially because of the live-action-y, spin-off-y Angelina Jolie movies, was very aware of Maleficent as a thing, but she stands out so much, like, I think we talked way back even in Snow White about how the evil queen's design is like really iconic and feels just just spot on right from the off. Maleficent feels like that, dialed up to 11 and with an actual character to match. I feel like the, the evil queen was kind of a bit thin at times, like whereas Maleficent... I don't know, there's just something about her. I love the way that like she has status. She's referred to as your excellency. Yeah, she just swoops into this film, brings the drama. She's pure evil. She has yellow eyes. She comes in on a storm. Like everything about her just feels prime villain territory, not just in a Disney sense, in a, like a movie movie sense. And she's so hardcore, right? Like the first thing she does in the movie comes in, she's describing this curse that she's going to put on the kids. She says, when she hits her 16th birthday, she will prick her finger on a spinning wheel. 
and die. And just like really emphasis on the die. It kind of comes out of mm-hmm. nowhere. Like, oh, prick a finger on a spinning wheel. Oh, that doesn't sound that bad. And die. Whoa, shit. Whoa. She's kicked it up a notch. I love that at that moment, Aurora's mum, the Queen Leah, was it? Goes, oh no. <laughs> that is her response to Maleficent saying, your baby's going to die and it's going to be my fault. Beautifully voiced by Eleanor Audley, who also brought us Lady Tremaine from Cinderella. Similar characters, but also very different, I feel, because Tremaine is so still and reserved, whereas Maleficent is properly flamboyant, from her outfit to the way that she enters and exits a scene, surrounded by purple smoke, and particularly by this really sickly green flame, which is both obviously completely otherworldly, because fire's not green, but also is not a colour that is found anywhere else in this film, apart from when it's directly associated with Maleficent. It's a real trademark for the character, and it's so vivid. I mean, she's completely extra. I love that she lives at the Forbidden Mountains, which has a real Chernobog vibe. Like, she feels like a greatest hits of every Disney villain so far, all wrapped into one. She has these little henchmen who are these little, like, demon-y, goblin-y guys. There's, like, a little pig one. There's a kind of gremlin-y one. I couldn't help, but when she's doing all of her, like, purple, sparky magic, I was sitting there in my head going, Look who's messing up everything, it's Maleficent all along. And, I mean, the name fits the rhyme scheme perfectly, so I was just going to roll with it. She's just cool as hell, man. And those pig boys, just the worst goons in the history of cinema, (laughs) right? So, pretty weak goons. She's been tasking them for 16 years with tracking down the baby Aurora so that she can make sure this curse comes to pass. And it turns out that the reason they haven't found her is because they've been looking for a baby for 16 years. <laughs> She's just furious. And like, no, what? No! Grown woman, 16, people age, people grow up. This isn't Peter Pan we're talking about here. This isn't a 16 year old baby. I think something else, I think another reason why people probably love her, and for me, a reason, we'll get to it, but why the live-action movie doesn't necessarily work, is that she is just unrepentantly evil. She just rocks up, screws with people, and leaves. And I like how she's meddling all the way through the film, because Aurora nearly reaches her 16th birthday without touching a spindle. As soon as that curse comes to light, the king demands that all of the spinning wheels are to be destroyed. You have this amazing shot of all of the spinning wheels on fire, which feels massive and epic. So Maleficent's plan nearly fails, and she has to basically enchant Aurora, put her into a trance, draw her away into the castle, manipulates her in order for her curse to work. The whole way through, she is just pulling all the strings And I think there's something really refreshing about how just pure evil she is without anything behind it necessarily driving it. She's just a total badass. Yeah, she is the mistress of all evil, as she proudly proclaims herself, and that's all she needs to be. That's all she needs to be. That's foreshadowing. I do have a theory, though, about the spinning wheels if you'll indulge me in this. So, King Stefan orders all of the spinning wheels in the kingdoms burned. Makes me think, where are they getting the clothes from for the next 16 years? Who's making the clothes for these people? What about the neighbouring kingdom, ruled over by King Hubert, King Stefan's best friend, father to Prince Philip, Aurora's betrothed? I think maybe King Hubert might be behind the whole thing in order to really beef up the export of these clothes, you know? Where they're buying clothes from, gotta be Hubert, yeah? Pump up those prices. 
you're in the money, baby. I think there's a, a conspiracy here. Look who's messing up everything. It's King Hubert all along. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Maybe there's a grand conspiracy there. I mean, the other thing that's amazing about Maleficent is that at the end of this movie, she just turns into a massive dragon, a big old purple dragon, which is cool as hell. It gives you like a big old fight sequence. We're going to come back to the dragon fight at the end. But I mean, as far as villain powers go, that's huge. Yeah, she really looks like she's about to kill Prince Philip, like she's not holding back. And even before that, we get this scene where she captures Philip to stop him from kissing Aurora and waking her up. And she tortures him with this vision of her letting him go in a hundred years when Aurora is just awoken from her sleep at the age of 16 still. And the prince is now an ancient hundred year old dude and he's not able to be with her anymore. And it's just so cruel, these visions that she conjures up to torture the guy in Needless. Yeah, that felt really inventive to me, the way that she's just like, I'm just going to show you this like nightmarish image of you as a decrepit old man being like, I will wake you from with love through kiss. Again, it just adds up to this idea that she's just pure evil and there doesn't need to be more to it than that. Alas, we found out there was more to it than that later down the line. And I think the thing that makes it all the better is that her nemesis through this movie is initially a newborn baby and then a 15-year-old girl. (laughs) It's Maleficent's uber nemesis through this film, uh, which obviously is Aurora. Now, the thing that I hadn't really thought about because I just hadn't really thought about this movie is that Sleeping Beauty is not the name of the character. But when you think about it, Snow White is called Snow White. The film is Snow White. She is Snow White. The film is Cinderella. She is Cinderella. I guess it falls down a bit at The Little Mermaid because, I mean, she's not called The Little Mermaid. But people refer to that character as Sleeping Beauty. But she has she has many names, as they would say in some kind of uh, fantasy situation. She's Aurora, and then she's Briar Rose. That's her, like, civilian name. What, what do you make of Sleeping Beauty, of... Aurora, uh, Briar Rose as a character? Well, first of all, to pick up on those names, Aurora is her name in the ballet, and Briar Rose is her name in the grim version of the story. So these aren't totally original to Disney, but, you know, when she pops up in, like, Shrek, for instance, in non-Disney products, she's always just called Sleeping Beauty, because I guess Aurora is now closely associated with that version of the character. And to answer your real question there, I think she is fine bordering on poor as a (laughs) protagonist. She is worse than Cinderella as a character. She is maybe actually arguably less well-developed than Snow White even. I mean, these, in the grand scheme of female characters, these characters rank fairly close together, these three princesses, but... You know, none of them are great. Aurora might be the worst, just purely in terms of she has nothing to do, she has no agency, she barely speaks. She doesn't speak after she wakes up, by the way. You notice that? She wakes up and then she has no lines. (laughs) And the same thing happens in Snow White and the same thing happens in, in Cinderella. After the slipper gets fitted, she has no lines. It's just, there's a wedding, there's a wedding, there's a wedding. And that's kind of what happens here as well. So... I don't know. Her main showcase scene, which we'll get to in a bit, is great. But when you have less of a personality than Cinderella, 
you are not a good character. Yeah, she she's not the most developed character. She does have. I was keeping an eye out for the Disney princess tropes, and she has the ultimate one, which is that she is friends to all the animals in the forest. She sings to the birds. She tells the forest animals after she's met the prince, oh, I've met a prince in my dreams. She is kind of communicating with nature. She's benevolent. Everybody naturally just loves her and likes her, which feels like the central tenet, really, of what a Disney princess is at this point. That's been the case with Snow White and with Cinderella and now with Briar Rose. One thing she doesn't have, though, is that up until that last point where she gets cursed and falls asleep, she doesn't really suffer any hardship. Like... Snow White and Cinderella are both abused by their stepmothers. They're both forced to work day in and day out. They feel, especially a point of it is made in Cinderella, it feels like they have earned their happy ending a little bit. You know, even if they don't have any agency in the plot at large, they have endured some kind of hardship. Aurora seems very happy to be raised away from the palace, never knowing, by the way, that she's missing out on being a princess. She seems very happy to be raised by the fairies in the forest. She doesn't seem to have to do much manual labour. Like, I think she's going to pick berries or something when she wanders off into the forest and eventually meets the prince. It's some kind of task she's got to fulfil, which she doesn't, by the way. She comes home empty-handed. And the biggest thing she has to whinge about in this movie, the biggest upset to her is that she finds out she's a princess and therefore can't marry the guy she's just met who she doesn't realize is the prince that she's betrothed to marry anyway and she is absolutely devastated like okay i know she's a 15 year old girl but like really being a princess over marrying someone you just met (laughs) i i I know which one i would go for you know which one would you go for (laughs) i'd go for the princess princess sam Yeah, I was kind of taken aback by the quasi-Shakespearean mix-up at the heart of this, that, like, the princess and the prince fall in love, but at the time, neither of them appear as a princess or a prince, and they think they can't be together, but they're actually in an arranged marriage to each other. felt like a weird construct. It felt like something out of a Shakespearean comedy that's like wedding japes. Yeah, maybe the the movie Mamma Mia, something like that. (laughs) Oh my god, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing... There is a sitcom in this film that I'm desperate to see that we never really get, and that is the sitcom of a teenage girl being raised by three older women who are secretly fairies in the woods. That's the setup for a domestic sitcom right there. Really want to see more of that, right? And they could have given us that. I mean, we'll talk about this as we go through, but as great a movie as this is, I think there's lots of missed opportunities for character development within it that could have been achieved with a little bit more time. Like, it's a 70-minute movie. That's about average for a Disney movie at this point, if not on the short side. Give it another 20 minutes, beefing it up to maybe the runtime that we expect from an animated movie. And you could get so much more of that kind of development, so much more of the relationship between Aurora and the prince, between Aurora and the fairies. Although we do spend quite a bit of time with the fairies in that environment, but not with Aurora. Yeah, and I liked those fairies. I mean, they're in the film right from the beginning. They are, as we said, bestowing these gifts upon Aurora. You have Flora, who bestows beauty. You have Fauna, who gives her the gift of song, and Merryweather, after being interrupted by Maleficent, is the one who downgrades Maleficent's spell from being prick a finger and you die to prick a finger and you fall asleep. Why didn't she just say prick a finger and, like, put a blaster on it? Who knows? (laughs) I don't understand the fairy logic here. Maleficent's magic is too strong. 
It's either death or asleep forever. There's no other setting. These fairies, though, like, they're our protagonists here, right? We've just spent a bit talking about Aurora, but we spend so much more time in the movie with the fairies. We spend more time with the fairies than Philip. Philip would not have escaped from Maleficent or been able to defeat the dragon without the help of the fairies. And perhaps most importantly, it's the fairies who screw up, leading to Aurora being found and captured because they're trying to get by. They've been trying to get by for 16 years without using their powers, but now they want to give Aurora a big surprise party. They want to make a lovely cake. They want to make a nice dress. They want to put on a super sweet 16th. And they realise that they can't do that without their wands because they're useless. And not only that, but when they get the wands out, they start quibbling about whether the dress is going to be pink or blue and and changing the colour of it magically. And that's what gets the attention of Maleficent's spy, her pet crow. And that's what leads to the curse being fulfilled, ultimately, right? Yeah, because if the crow doesn't spot the magic and doesn't know where Aurora has been, then Maleficent can't do her thing and trick Aurora into pricking her finger and all of that. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on here. First up, I enjoyed the colour fight. Sam, have you played the game Splatoon? I have not played the game Splatoon, but I have played as the characters from Splatoon in the game Super Smash Bros. So in Splatoon, it's like a shoot 'em up game, but it's all paint. You have to like paint an area of a map. And there's a moment where the dress that the fairies are making for Aurora, they're trying to decide whether it should be blue or should be pink. And they both do the spell and it's sort of splattered blue and pink all over. And I was like, that looks like it's out of Splatoon. That was my smart critical thought for the day. So I wanted to pick up on that. I also wanted to pick up on, we didn't talk about the crow. I liked that crow. That was a fun character. Anyone close to Maleficent gets some of that Maleficent shine on them. But that crow just has good vibes, man. Well, like good bad vibes. Yeah, a lot of personality. Another great disney henchman character you know we've got disney sidekicks we've got disney mentors we've got disney henchmen you've always got some of these characters in your disney movie and this guy falls he's he's ranked highly in that in that pantheon of henchmen i think i guess because they're both birds but he had a bit of an iago vibe from aladdin for me and yeah he's the one who finds out where aurora is because of this screw up because of this flaw in the fairy's plan this flaw in the fairy's characters so they are the ones who mess it up and they're the ones who have to make it right they have the arc in this movie they're the protagonists they're the leads it's not a movie about aurora really it's a movie about the fairies the fairies have dialogue in the denouement the fairies have dialogue in the epilogue after she wakes up but aurora and the prince don't I mean, I I stand by more of this film should have just been My Three Mums, the Aurora story. You joke, but I think that is a good point because in a way this is an example of like a queer family setup, right? It's a non-heteronormative chosen family environment where this girl's being raised by three women and I guess it's kind of a shame that that's obliterated by the end of the movie that we revert back to the heteronormative family dynamic of the princess living with the king and the queen maybe it would have been more interesting rather than getting upset over not being able to get with this guy she's just met if she was upset about having to leave the fairies if she was upset about having to leave these people who've raised her for 16 years to go and live with this king and this queen that she's never met yeah because i love the sense that actually even though she's been raised by these three women who 
have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Even by the time Aurora's 16, when they're trying to throw that party, they're having to use their magic because they try and make a cake. I think it's really funny when they try and make the cake and they're folding the eggs into the uh, into the cake batter and do a terrible job of making the dress. That felt like a really fun callback to Cinderella when the mice put together this astonishing dress for Cinderella and then you have the fairies here doing a horrible horrible job of creating this just weird pink monstrosity that thankfully never gets worn but yeah these three characters the whole point is that they don't really know what they're doing they're like we have to raise this girl because she can't live in the castle but they have raised a lovely well-adjusted daughter effectively and I think it's really interesting that kind of it's not even really subtext it's like right there in the film itself and as comic relief characters they feel integrated into the story a lot better than for example the mice in Cinderella because they're not just comic characters they have real heart and a real relationship with our quote-unquote lead and when they're making the cake and making the dress I'll stop mentioning this because eventually it's just going to become the norm but this is plot relevant antics these are antics shenanigans we use those words over and over again. Are there any more words for... Um, I mean, I've used japes a few times. That's a good one, yeah, japes. Uh, Bit of mischief. Uh, mischief, classic mischief. But they don't stop the plot to a halt. They tell us something about these characters and about their relationship and they move the story forward. So in that sense, I don't think the plotting and the pacing of this movie is as good as something like Lady and the Tramp, but I do think we are seeing the studio as a whole start to tighten their plot apparatus a little bit more. And so as we've said, the thing that's going to break up that unit of of my three mums and Aurora, the girl in the woods, is that she meets a prince in the woods, although she doesn't know that he's a prince and he doesn't know that she's a princess. And there is an incredible shot when these guys don't necessarily meet but sort of cross paths. You have Aurora in the foreground, she's singing to the birds in the forest, she's kind of living her best life, walking through this gorgeous forest, friend of all animals, friend of nature, and she's walking across a log on a ravine in the foreground, and then we get this incredible zoom right through to the background, where in the distance the prince is riding his horse. That felt like just a really, really impressive shot to me, Sam. Is that a big one for you? It's beautiful, it's impressive, it's another one of those very complex, like, multiplayer and lots of moving parts shots in the same way that the I always turn to the establishing shot of the village at morning in Pinocchio, where you also have lots of pans and zooms through different areas, through different planes of background design. And this forest looks so cool. Like, it's the best design work from Avondale in the movie. I love the square trees, man. I'm obsessed with the square trees. It's just so random, but otherworldly. It just really places you in this fantasy environment. The trees, all their leaves are arranged in squares. And it's just, I don't know, it just looks so cool. There's some great art that I might put on Twitter sort of diagrams that Avondale made to teach the background painters how to construct those trees. So it's like, start with a black square, and then add leaves around the outside, and then start to build the leaves up. It's like a step-by-step thing. It's really, really cool. And it was worth it, because those square trees float my boat, man. And yeah, this is our introduction to the prince, who... 
I mean, I don't think this is hard, but he has a little bit more personality than the prince in Cinderella. Also, he has a horse called Samson. Is this horse on your Disney horses list? He strikes me as a Sam Summers favourite. This is a guy who'll do anything for an extra bucket of oats. (laughs) He's a pretty good horse. He's not quite up there with Cyril Proudbottom in terms of my favourite horses so far, the guy from Ichabod and Mr. Toad. But he's, he's a pretty good horse. He's got that quality that you eventually see in characters like Maximus from Tangled, like sarcasm and undercutting the pomposity of his rider. Pretty good horse pretty good prince as far as princes go at this point he's got a name he's got lines of dialogue somewhat substantial lines of dialogue we spend some time with him away from the princess better than the other two yeah i would say he is i mean the the real flaw here is aurora because she does the classic princess thing of just like meeting him falling in love and then running away without telling him her name <laughs> why does this keep happening i thought she was running away because she is worried about, like, oh, if I tell someone who I am, the Maleficent will find me or whatever. But no, because then she tells him to come and meet her at the cottage at night, so there's no real explanation as to why she ran away. It's just a princess trope. Another thing that is very similar to Snow White is that she is singing Once Upon a Dream, and then the prince surprises her by coming up from behind and joining in. That's exactly how the prince isn't reduced in Snow White. That's exactly how they're meeting Snow White. He interrupts her midline in a song at the Wishing Well. And this was the point where we'd heard Once Upon a Dream a couple of times by now, and this is the probably the biggest instance of it in the film. And it kind of got its hooks into me at this point. I, I thought it was a pretty catchy tune. Yeah, this is the film's like big production number. Maybe the scene that shows the influence of Tchaikovsky most clearly and the I mean it's not quite ballet, the dancing that goes on, but it's it's very nicely choreographed. And also this is the scene that features my favourite character in the movie. Not quite the horse, but a character who I've chosen to refer to as Cosplay Owl. Yes. Before she meets the prince, she's telling the animals about a dream she had about meeting a prince, and so the animals steal the prince's clothes and dress up an owl, and she dances with the owl, and he's got, like, little, is it rabbits in his shoes doing, like, the foot movements, and this owl is just so pleased to be involved. He's just, like, happy to be there. I don't think he's in love with Aurora or anything. I wouldn't go that far, but, like, he's just really pleased with this idea that he's had. Like you said, this is, for me, an instance of, like, it's a very strong jape that is just built into the film itself. We're not having to stop for this jape. It's just a fun thing that's happening in the movie, you know? That these animals go, she's fallen in love with this prince in her dreams who surely can't be real, but what we can do is just dress up in these clothes that we found draped over a branch and and we can give her a little bit of that fantasy, the whole setup of it is inherently quite sweet. It's more interesting than helping out a cleaner house, right? Or or even more interesting (laughs) than stitching up a dress for her, like we've seen in Snow White and Cinderella. Speaking of very expensive purchases, years ago I saw a plush toy of the owl in the hat and the cape in the (gasps) Disney store, and for some ridiculous reason I didn't buy it, and I looked it up on eBay the other day, and it's three digits. It's like hundreds of pounds for the owl plush. Oh, you should have done it. You should have got it while you had the chance. I know, I know. It's a huge regret. I mean, that owl as well. I love the moment where Aurora is saying to them, oh, I saw this guy in my dreams. And in this one, the animals don't actually talk to her, but the owl, because of the noises that owls make, just keeps going, whoo. (laughs) 
And they build that into the dialogue of the film. That was fun. Nice, nice. Oh, before we move on as well, just one more thing to say. Uh... (gasps) It catches me off guard every week. It scares the absolute crap out of me. I think that was the Nine Old Man of the Week alarm. It's the Nine Old Man of the Week alarm. So this week, in relation to this sequence in particular, I want to talk about a guy called Eric Larson, our Nine Old Man of the Week. So, this is another nine-year-old man who had been working with Disney for a while. He'd worked on most of the features and a lot of shorts up to this point as well. Seemed to have a thing for animating birds and flying creatures. He did Pegasus in Fantasia. He did Burrito, the flying donkey in The Three Caballeros. He did the owl in Bambi and he did Sasha and Peter and the wolf. He did a lot of other kind of cute characters. He did a little toot. He did the figure all the cat in Pinocchio. And he was great at like establishing shots or opening sequences as well because he did our first glimpse of Cinderella, Alice, and in a scene which you highlighted in that episode, Peter Pan, where he's nimbly dancing his way across the roof in a sort of sinister fashion right at the start in The Darling's Home. But in Sleeping Beauty, along with other nine-year-old men, Les Clark, who we talked about last time with Lady and the Tramp, and Wooly Ritherman, who's going to be a really big figure in some of the films we're talking about in a few episodes' time, these three old men were promoted to sequence director. So that meant that they were basically sharing directing duties for the film, but cut up into little sequences. And this marks a significant transition because up until this point, all the post-war features have been co-directed by three guys called Clyde Geronimi, Hamilton Lusk and Wilfred Jackson. And these guys had all been animators like before the war on films like Snow White, but they weren't as experienced as the old men. They hadn't been doing that job for as long. And they were also members of this kind of old guard. So this is the start of a transition to this new generation, chiefly the nine old men, getting more power over the way that these films look, the way that these films work. And in the next few episodes, we'll see the studio's priorities start to shift in part as a result of that change. But I want to talk about Larson today because he directed this forest sequence and basically set out to make the most stunningly beautiful scene in any Disney movie and succeeded. And it's through these extensive and expensive multiplane shots. This was the most expensive sequence in the movie. Walt and Roy apparently weren't happy when it went over its allotted budget. It's quite long, but this was the only sequence that he directed in the movie. Even though he's not animating in this, he's telling other animators what to do and arranging the sequence and deciding how it's going to play out, it still has all of his hallmarks. Really efficient characterization. It's our introduction to the prince and Aurora as adults. Really cute animals and one hell of a bird. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the owl. Who? <laughs> Who? Yeah, that one. So... This is maybe his most significant contribution to a Disney feature film, but before we move on, I also wanted to talk about possibly his most significant contribution to animation as a whole, because after this movie, he transitioned into sort of an education and recruitment role at Disney. He was the head of the training program, which they set up in the 1970s to replace this generation of animators who are now retiring. And he basically taught the tricks of the trade, to most of the most influential animators of the late 20th century, many of whom we'll be hearing about on this podcast. I'm going to list some, Ben, and I'm going to do them in what I think is reverse order of how famous they are to you. Okay. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Making some presumptions. but So he trained Richard Rich, Joe Ranft, 
Don Bluth, Henry Selleck, Ron Clements and John Musker, Glenn mm-hmm. Keane, Chris Buck, Brad Bird, John Lasseter, and Tim Burton, among others. Yep, those names got more recognisable as, as they went along. Wow, so some huge names, obviously. Let's break down a couple of them. Brad Bird, obviously, The Incredibles and The Simpsons and all sorts. Tim Burton, everybody knows Tim Burton, come on. John Lasseter founded Pixar. Chris Buck directed Frozen, among other Disney features. Glenn Keane, who is possibly the most significant character animator of the 90s renaissance period he did like yeah is he little mermaid era yeah he did ariel he did pocahontas he did the beast clements and musker directed a big chunk of those renaissance movies and later did moana which i know is a movie you love then Uh, henry selick one of the most important stop motion feature directors directed nightmare before christmas and Coraline, and james and the giant peach and james and the giant peach yeah people forget james and the giant peach also that is a solid film pub quiz fact if it ever comes up who directed nightmare before christmas not tim burton it's henry selick so don bluth and richard rich who we'll be hearing about in later episodes they were big figures at disney in the 1980s and eventually became some of disney's biggest competitors in the 1990s And Joe Ranft, the late, great Joe Ranft, who was a hugely influential story artist at Pixar who contributed majorly to the stories of that whole first wave of classic Pixar movies. All trained under Eric Larson. And will we see Eric Larson's work in a few more Disney films to come? Yeah, he's coming up. He he, he kept on trucking. He didn't direct again, but he kept on trucking in um, Dalmatians and Sword of the Stone a little bit. But this was his last major contribution to one of these films, in my eyes, and it was probably his best. There we go. That's our nine old man of the week. Uh, I hope you've all recovered from the double dose of the alarm. (laughs) Something that came up when we were talking about Bambi is that I spent the whole film going, when is Bambi's mum going to get shot? I know that is the thing from this film. I just don't know when it's going to happen. It played out like a thriller, because every time they went out onto the moors, I was like, this is it, she's going to go. In this one, I did not know when Sleeping Beauty was going to go to sleep, and it's about two-thirds of the way through the film. It takes quite a long time for Aurora to prick her finger uh, after some manipulation from Maleficent, and she's not actually asleep for that long. No, it wasn't quite a hundred years, was it, in the end? I don't even think it was a hundred minutes. Maleficent manipulates the situation. She kind of draws Aurora through a wormhole, effectively, into the tower, puts her in a trance so that she pricks her finger and falls asleep. I was waiting a long time for that to happen. Anyway, the fairies spring into action and put everybody in the castle who had turned up for the big 16th birthday party, whatever, put them all to sleep so that when Aurora finally wakes up, the rest of them will be woken up too. I think they just had like an hour's nap. There's not a huge amount of time between her falling asleep and getting that true love's kiss. It all leads us into this final act where it becomes a big old dragon fight. As we said, one of Maleficent's powers is that she can transform into a massive fire breather. And that was a cool way to end this film. I don't think I expected so much action, so much tension, even a bit of blood. Because when Maleficent, Dragon Maleficent gets stabbed... You see a bit of blood coming out. This whole film for me feels like a much darker fairy tale, a very different kind of princess story to Snow White and especially to Cinderella. I think that is a big part of what makes it stand out and I think that's probably a big part of why I was so desperate to watch it when I was a teenager because I was was a bit of a goth back in those days. 
And what I knew about this movie was, oh, it's got Maleficent in it, it's got a big dragon in it, it's got a bit where she screams, now you will deal with me and all the powers of hell. <laughs> oh, she's so metal, it's amazing. Hell? We're going to hell in a Disney movie? We're bringing that up? What is this, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? All the powers of hell. I also love that Maleficent, um, there's that scene in her lair when all of the like demons are just having like a dance party. It's like they're all like, ooh, it's spooky. It's another classic Disney jamboree and also quite reminiscent of Night on Ball Mountain, this like satanic reverie. But yeah, big dragon, big scrap. Philip prevails mainly through the input of the fairies, let's be honest. He would have been screwed without them. They enchant his sword so that it flies into Maleficent's big dragon chest and kills our good, kills our dead. I mean, the fact that the whole film ends up in a big old dragon fight in a castle and there's green flames everywhere, I was like, this is Disney does Game of Thrones. This is yeah. wildfire all over again. It just adds to the whole feeling of this movie having just an epic tone. It feels grander in every sense than I think the other princess movies, which feel like quite personal stories about those central girls, the central characters at the heart of them. Whereas this one feels like a wider story that Aurora happens to be kind of at the center of but there's a bigger picture here of, of these yeah warring kingdoms of this evil figure who just comes to mess things up big old battles dragon fight which to me as somebody again who didn't really know this movie i was like oh this is why they do that in enchanted <laughs> which i love that film yeah that what's that character called narissa I think that's it. She's very influenced by Maleficent. She's kind of a mashup of all the wicked queens from these movies, but yeah, definitely influenced by Maleficent. It is indeed Narissa, and I'm very excited as we record this that production has begun on Disenchanted, the uh, long-awaited sequel. Amy Adams is back as Giselle. Oh, it's going to be good. There's going to be new Alan Menken music. Ooh, how yeah. many dragons? Have they said how many dragons? They have not yet confirmed the number of dragons, or if there'll be wildfire, but hey, they're also making a Game of Thrones prequel, so maybe it's the same thing. So with a little bit of help from the fairy magic, Philip kills Maleficent, the dragon is done for, he goes in, gives Aurora a good old smooch, the whole kingdom comes back to life, the whole palette brightens up again, the whole kingdom comes back to life, back to colour, and Aurora is reunited with her parents, there's sort of tears and smooches all round, and we end once again on Once Upon a Dream. Aurora and Philip, they just, they're just dancing straight off. She's out of a coma and onto the dance floor. That is a huge, huge mood. And we end on the biggest question of all. It comes back. We've had it earlier in the film. Should that dress be blue or pink? Sam, what side do you come down on? Blue or pink dress? Well, I mean, the true answer of this was dictated by the guys putting together the Disney Princess Brandon campaign in the early 2000s because, hey, look, Cinderella's dress is blue, so hers is going to be pink. We can't have two blue dresses. I mean, Cinderella's dress isn't even that blue in the movie. It's kind of white. Yeah, I mean, I was team pink because of that. I was like, Cinderella's dress is blue, although obviously the dress that the mice make for Cinderella is pink. I think both of those guys are swapping wardrobes. I think they're just like, they're basically the same person. <laughs> I think they're going to be sharing their wardrobes, you know? Very similar build, same size, definitely. Maybe we should swap wardrobes. We'll, well see what happens. I, I, we are not the same size. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, sorry, you're taller than me. You're taller than me. It wasn't, it wasn't a diss. <laughs> Sam, I know I'm bigger than you. You don't need to make it personal. Anyway, that's the end of this discussion and the end of this podcast forever. Goodbye. Thank you.
okay, now I've had some time to pick up my self-esteem, to piece myself back together after Sam's brutal diss, we have reached Discarded, the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from, looking at all the weird, creepy things that Disney took one look at and said, yeah, let's not do that. Sam, in the run-up to recording this episode, you warned me that there is some wild discarded stuff here. What is happening in the Charles Perrault Sleeping Beauty? Or are there other versions of this that are even worse? Well, the answer to that is yes, but they are so bad that I'm not talking about them on the podcast. The one we, <laughs> the one we are going to talk about today is the Perrault version. So obviously, like Cinderella, this is a story that's existed forever, but it's the Perrault version that is credited in the opening titles of this movie. So, in that version, would you believe the princess does sleep for a hundred years? Let's start with that. Ooh, long old nap. Yeah, so the idea of the prince knowing her since she was a child and meeting her again as a teenager is not part of the original story. That's a Disney edition, which shows that they were a little bit invested in fleshing out that love story, even if it's not as well-drawn as perhaps we would like today. So, because in the Perot version, she doesn't know the prince since she was a kid, he's just a random guy who turns up to the palace and gives her a big smooch to wake her up a hundred years later, the Disney artists were, quote, uncomfortable with the idea that the princess would technically be 80 years older than the prince in this situation. Wait, that's the creepy bit? Not that her true love's kiss comes from somebody that she doesn't even know, that she's never met before? Just some random dude who's like, I'm gonna be the kiss guy. Not in a Gene Simmons sense. <laughs> in this one, they've known each other for like five minutes. So, but well, the other thing is, in the parole, because it's been a hundred years, I'm not even sure if it is the kiss that wakes her up or if this guy just happened to be there when the curse came to his natural end because it was a hundred year old curse. It was a hundred year time limit. I think the other thing is that the fact that Disney have chosen to go with this shorter spell makes it less unique as a story it makes it less specifically sleep and beauty because what we end up with is like in other aspects similar to snow white like sleep and beauty is actually asleep for less than snow white in the movie in, <laughs> in, in, in like movie time snow white is asleep for like a while it's implied because they put her in the coffin and they stand guard for ages and eventually the prince comes by here we know that sleeping beauty is asleep for like an hour like you say so the sleeping aspect becomes redundant (laughs) yeah she's just snapping beauty basically yeah so maybe it would have made more sense to go with the parole version in that regard but there's benefits to what they did as well so i don't know What I really wanted to talk about is what happens in the Perot version after she wakes up, because the Disney version is quite abrupt. In the Perot, it goes on. That is midway through the story, and quite a lot happens to these characters after she wakes up. Right. Have you ever done that thing where you fall asleep, and you plan to go for about a 15-minute nap, and you wake up and it's been like two hours, and you feel just the worst you've ever felt and completely discombobulated? She must feel terrible after waking up from a hundred-year sleep. Presumably the kingdom has completely changed around her. What what world is she waking up into? <laughs> yeah, she's like Steve Rogers. She's like Captain America. She's being on ice. She's the original Cap. So that is not dealt with, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, don't worry about that. So she marries the prince. She goes home with the prince to meet the parents. And it turns out... Again, another sitcom setup right there. Again, another kind of Shrek-esque situation, and the Shrek comparisons start coming and they don't stop coming because it turns out <laughs> <laughs> because it turns out that the prince's mother is secretly an ogre. The queen is an ogre in this story. What? No way. <laughs> yeah. 
Does she have layers? Well, absolutely. She's got an outer layer. That's a queen. And then beneath that, she's got an ogre layer, I guess. She is not a friendly ogre like Shrek and Fiona. She's a nasty ogre. And she tells the palace chef to cook the princess, to cook Sleeping Beauty for her dinner. She wants to eat her up. She says, this woman that my son's brought home, she's dinner. I'm eating her tonight. And the chef, in another Snow White with the Huntsman situation, decides to trick her by cooking a deer and trying to pass it off as cooking Bambi's mom and trying to pass it off as the princess. But she figures that out. She realises that she's being tricked and she goes absolutely off it and she, she reverts to plan B, right? This is where it becomes like a real humdinger for me. <laughs> so, okay, let's go. The ogre slash queen goes out into the garden and prepares a big tub full of snakes. <laughs> what? Big t- snakes? Why do it have to be snakes, Sam? She fills a big tub with snakes, and she's going to chuck the princess into the snakes now? As j- just like an unpleasant situation, or like a, uh, presumably one of these snakes might kill her? What's yeah, I think that's plan? death. I think she's going to be eaten by the snakes. They're like vipers. They're like poison deadly snakes. In the midst of all this... While she's, I guess, taking the time to procure these snakes, I don't really know how long this is going to take. In the midst of all this, her husband, the king, walks in and realises that she's an ogre. I don't know how long the king was oblivious to this for, (laughs) but he's just realised that she's an ogre, and she's like, oh shit, the jig is up, and she commits suicide by jumping into the tub full of snakes. (laughs) So basically what she does is, does a big tub of snakes in the back garden, panics, and jumps in herself. (laughs) Yes! It's more like an episode of Jackass than a fairy story. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Barrel of Snakes. <laughs> so yeah, that's how that version ends. Like all of these goddamn director video sequels and no one thought to make the sequel to Sleeping Beauty where the villain is an ogre with a big box of snakes. Oh man. Can I just say one of my favourite Jackass segments is something called Bee Limo, where they fill a limo with bees and sit inside the limo and then obviously they're all getting stung by the bees and when they leave the limo on the floor there's loads of marbles so they immediately fall over on all the marbles. (laughs) Snakes in a Barrel is like Bee Limo medieval edition, you know? Fantastic. So yeah, there we go. Discarded. God, I love that one. (laughs) It's one of my favourites. That is mad. You can just see Walt being like, yeah, we're not going to do any of that. (laughs) She wakes up happily ever after. That's it. (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. So evidently we've enjoyed this movie a lot, but what did critics have to say at the time? Was this a massive hit? Did it get good write-ups? I mean, people were pretty mean about Lady and the Tramp, about those good dogs. Ben, this was probably the worst critically received Disney movie to this point. What? We're talking about on par with Make My Music. Maybe, if not worse. They didn't like it. They did not like it. I think maybe it was fatigue. You get a real sense in reading these things that we talked right at the start that it seems like the impetus for this movie was what had Cinderella, it was basically another Snow White, and it was a hit. So let's do another, another Snow White and that must be a hit. I think the issue is that people were sick of it. Most of the reviews specifically mention Snow White as a point of comparison. So The Observer, for example, said that 21 years have passed since Snow White, and now Disney presents us with its sister, Sleep and Beauty. The question arises, has Disney's work developed from that time to this time? So far as techniques are concerned, yes. 
but in all that affects the imagination, regrettably, but definitely no. And almost every critic is on the same line as this. Oh man, that's so upsetting. But you can kind of see it, right? If you put the visuals aside, has that much changed? In terms of the way, I know this is maybe a modern, a more modern way to look at it than these particular critics would have been, but in terms of the way that these princess characters are presented, how little seems to have evolved in 20 years, you know? Yeah, I can sort of see it, but I think as we've said all along that like the way that they're integrating japes and songs into plot, I think they have got more confident, but I can understand at the time they were probably coming at it from a different place. But yeah, I wonder when the critical renaissance or reappraisal of this began. I mean, like a lot of Disney movies, it, a bit like with Alice in Wonderland, for example, it was re-released in the 70s and it became a bigger hit and a bit more critically lauded if you read like reviews from that kind of period it's a bit more positive but um yeah people weren't even down with the visuals because that's i think that where i stand on this movie i mean we'll get to our ratings in a bit is fantastic visuals that completely make up for the fact that the story isn't great and i mean there, there are good things about the story but it's the visuals that set it apart at the time we've got for example time magazine saying even the drawing in Sleeping Beauty is crude, a compromise between sentimental crayon book childishness and the sort of cute commercial cubism that tries to seem daring but is really just square. Oh man, that stuff frustrates me because it's like they're clearly going for a style here. They've gone for a very specific stylistic choice that they've evidently worked really hard to implement as like a moving thing rather than just a drawing style. It annoys me still now when Disney put out the first teaser for Luca, which I think looks incredible, but they've gone for an even more stylized look than Pixar normally does. And I remember some of the initial reactions were like, oh, they let the intern direct this one. And it's like, no, they're clearly going for a different visual style. And just because it's not necessarily photo real doesn't mean that it's not impressive or beautiful. So I take umbrage with those critics, Sam. And audiences, unfortunately, were kind of in the same boat as well. So this movie was the most expensive animated movie that Disney had made. It was roughly twice as expensive as the likes of Peter Pan. It cost $6 million to make. In fact, that's that's just under what Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp made, right? And these were hits. So their biggest hits made like a couple of hundred thousand dollars more than this movie cost. It was a huge swing. And in part of trying to make that up, they charged double for tickets to go and see this movie. Oh, that's maybe not a wise move. Yeah. So they were trying to dig it up as this as this huge event. Oh, it's it's like Cinemascope. It's our most expensive movie yet. Something that had been widely reported on. Our most sophisticated movie yet. There was a lot of promotion put into it. It made $5.3 million, which is a decent amount of money, right? That is like nothing to sniff at. Maybe a million less than Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp. It's almost like a Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra situation where it was going to be impossible for this movie to make money. No matter, it would have to be the biggest Disney movie ever to make back what they put into it in terms of costs and marketing in that first run. And that's 5.3 million with double price tickets. So, in terms of actual bums in seats, very, very low compared to these last few Disneys. Mm. And so I guess we'll get to this, but presumably that's going to put them in a bit more of a tricky spot moving forward. Are we going to see the impact of that in future films? Oh, yes. I mean, this cost the company to post its first annual loss since the 1940s. Ouch. That ditch they managed to 
claw themselves out of with Cinderella, this put them right back in it. And they were ploughing money into Disneyland and stuff as well, but Disneyland was making money. And they had some hits this year as well. This came out the same year as The Shaggy Dog, which was Disney's first comedy. It was a black and white movie. It cost less than a million dollars to make, and it made nine million dollars without the pricey tickets. So this was a this, that was a gigantic hit. But still, this really protracted development process that went through with this movie put them in the red for the first time in a decade. Well, I think we can say though it was all worth it because for me, I think I'm going the full five stars on this. Like this for me is up there with Bambi. I mean, I said last week, Lady and the Tramp was up there with Bambi for me, which it totally is. This, in a different way, is up there with Bambi for me as the best thing we've watched on this podcast so far. I think it looks absolutely gorgeous. I think it's the best of these princess movies that we've seen so far. It feels so distinct in the Disney catalogue, while also feeling like massively Disney. I think it's a really incredible mix of feeling like completely its own thing, a very specific work of art, and also completely part of the whole Disney legacy. And I had a great time watching it. I can see myself returning to this when I need just something beautifully animated. Yeah, I I really like this one. What star rating would you go? I think I'm going to go the full five with caveats that need to be mentioned i mean it's so spectacular it's one of those every frame of painting movies you know you can take any shot from it and just stare at it for ages they're so dense with detail as well as being so huge in scope and it gave us maleficent who's a classic character it gave us as much as we talk about how weak a female character aurora is this is a female-led movie because the fairies and Maleficent carry the whole thing and within those four characters you've got four well-developed and diverse personalities as well, right? Like the fairies are all different, they're not interchangeable and it's more subtle than the dwarfs who obviously all have names that dictate their main personality trait. Here you, you can get to know those fairy characters but as you do you see the differences start to make themselves known. Having said that, I feel like it's got a little bit less heart than a Bambi or a Dumbo or a Lady and the Tramp. And I think with just another 20 minutes to develop the relationships between Aurora and the Prince, Aurora and the Fairies, and even Aurora and her parents where she meets them at the end and they don't say anything to each other again, it would have been perfect. Like another 10 or 20 minutes to give it that heart. It feels almost a shame that Disney's best-looking movie doesn't have that other thing that Disney is so good at, which is the the emotion, the sentimentality. But uh, who cares? Five stars. It's so good. It's so, so good. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So Sam, where do you want to begin this week? I think I will start with parks, because like Cinderella, this movie has a castle which has, in theory, inspired some of the castles in the Disneyland parks. So Cinderella's castle is the castle in Florida, right, in Disney World. The castle in Disneyland is Sleeping Beauty's castle. The first Disney castle, the first centerpiece in these parks was Sleeping Beauty's castle. And Disneyland, of course, opened in 1955. So work that one out. (laughs) So they had Sleeping Beauty's castle four years before the film came out? The idea is that it would help to promote the movie. And that did not pay off. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously we've got the, the the figures there to prove it, but I mean, 
I don't think they were expectant to have to wait five years for the movie to come out. Though it had various release dates throughout its lifetime. I think at one point it was going to be fifty-five. At one point it was going to be fifty-seven. They just misjudged how long that was going to take. Uh, so it's a lovely castle, or whatever. It's got some walkthrough like dioramas upstairs that tell the story of the movie using that art style, and they look pretty cool if you look them up on on YouTube. I really want to highlight, though, the castle in Disneyland Paris, which is also based around Sleeping Beauty. Right. And that is called Le Château de la Belle au Bois Dormant. Beautiful pronunciation there. Loved it. Thank you. And that has a much more interesting design than what I think of as quite a generic castle in Disneyland. The reason being that Europe is full of castles, right? They're building Euro (laughs) Disneyland. You can't move for castles over here. I've got a castle, like, ten minutes away from my house. (laughs) It's, they're everywhere so they had to do something a bit more spectacular a bit more fantastical it's a bit more weird to look at it's all kind of like spirals and weird like spires jutting out of it it's really cool it has the square trees nice the most important thing it's someone's job to like shear those trees into a perfect square shape like probably every day if we ever do an episode from disneyland paris we'll find the person whose job it is to keep the trees square Give them a big high five. It also has a dungeon with an 89-foot animatronic dragon. That's cool. Sort of a Maleficent dragon. I guess this is an alternate universe where she got chained up instead of murdered. Speaking of Maleficent, the legacy of Sleep and Beauty is pretty much the legacy of Maleficent as a character beyond that castle, yeah? Because I alluded to this earlier, but basically every time in any kind of spin-off media that all the Disney villains need to get together... Maleficent is the leader. Not every single time, like Jafar gets a look in, the queen from Snow White does sometimes as well, because I guess she's the first one. But Maleficent is, by consensus, the most powerful and the most memorable of these big villains. So I wanted to highlight a couple of works in which she is leading the squad of evil of evil Disney baddies. The first is Kingdom Hearts, which I've had a few tweets about why haven't you mentioned Kingdom Hearts yet, and it's because if I mentioned Kingdom Hearts every time something from a Disney movie was in a Kingdom Hearts game, I'd have mentioned it in every single episode so far. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts is a series of video games from Square Enix, the developers of the Final Fantasy series, which cross over the characters and concepts of the Final Fantasy universe with every Disney film ever. And I have played all of them, and they are insane. I could not begin to explain the plot of these games. Suffice to say that, well, you play like an anime-style hero called Sora who teams up with Donald and Goofy to fight all the Disney baddies and some even bigger baddies. And one of the main villains is Maleficent, who has a whole cohort of Disney villains that she pits against the heroes. And also a weird pseudo-sexual relationship with Pete, Mickey Mouse's nemesis, like the big fat cat guy. Have we discussed Pete on this podcast? I don't you think say so. Pete like I should know Pete. <laughs> you know Pete. He hasn't been in any of the movies, but he's a big cat guy. He's Mickey Mouse's nemesis. He goes like, oh, I'm gonna get you. I'm Googling Mickey Pete. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> you know I know Pete. who you mean. He's like a sort of big dog with trousers on. So he's like Maleficent's simp boyfriend in the Kingdom Hearts games. She's also an absolute bastard to fight every time you have to take her on. Very hard boss battles in those games, and Maleficent is one of the worst. Maleficent is also the main villain of a 
equally bizarre series of Disney Channel original movies from the 2010s called Descendants. Have you seen any of the Descendants? Do you even know what they are? Yeah, I think I'm vaguely aware that what these are the Descendants, the kids of the Disney villains, is it? Yeah, so this is a world where all the Disney villains have been basically segregated onto an island because of their crimes, just outside the kingdom of Oridon, which is the kingdom where all the good guys live. And it's been a while, so the Disney villains have gotten a little bit busy and had a bunch of kids. And the main plot of the series is that four of these kids get to go to high school in Oridon, where you get this kind of Mean Girls-style high school drama plays out, but also there's lots of weird, like, dubstep dance numbers. This sounds absolutely shockingly terrible. So I've seen them all. I'm kind of obsessed with the lore of this series because there's so much. I mean, we could do a whole podcast getting into it. Maybe we will. (laughs) Ben was shaking his head while he said that. So the main character is Mal, who is the daughter of Maleficent and Hades. Wow, what a combo. I mean, she's summoning all the powers of hell and that's kind of Hades' whole thing, right? Exactly. I think you would like Hades in these movies. He's got a kind of Bruce Springsteen-style like rock number in Descendants 3. Nice. You say Bruce Springsteen, I'm there. So Mal teams up with the kids of Jafar, Cruella, and the Queen from Snow White to get into clicky drama in a high school, basically. I mean, they're not good. So, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, for this podcast, watched Maleficent, the Angelina Jolie, I think, 2013 live-action spin-off-y thing, because I'd never seen it, and I think I'd kind of held off on seeing it because I hadn't seen Sleeping Beauty, and I knew this was such an iconic villain, and I thought, whenever I end up watching Sleeping Beauty, I will then watch Maleficent, knowing who that character is more and what their whole deal is. This is an interesting one because I think I've said in previous weeks, I like the Disney live action stuff when they do something a bit different with the material. And this one totally does. It's almost like a Sleeping Beauty remix. It's not a straight up live action adaptation. It's also still covering the events of Sleeping Beauty, but it changes quite a lot of the key plot points, basically with Maleficent as the main character and making her a more sympathetic character, which is kind of an interesting idea and also not a great one. So I think for me, the the thing that I struggled with when it came to Maleficent, the movie, is that it's just a bit tonally all over the place. Like there's some actually really dark stuff in there. We've spoken about how this is quite a dark princess movie, And there's this whole analogy, basically Maleficent grows up in a fairy kingdom just outside the kingdom where Sleeping Beauty is born, whatever that kingdom's called, I can't remember. But she grows up and as a child she is best friends with the young King Stefan. He is supposed to be her true love, that's supposed to be the true love's kiss thing. Basically as an adult, to prove himself and to take the throne, King Stefan takes Maleficent's wings, he drugs her and removes her wings while she's sleeping, which is, Angelina Jolie has spoken about, is very purposefully a metaphor for sexual assault, basically, which is really heavy, while at the same time this is a sort of Disney family adventure, and then you get this whole plot line where basically Maleficent is Aurora's fairy godmother, more or less. She's watching over her as a child as she grows up with the fairies and kind of becomes enamored with Aurora. She she actually really likes this little girl and doesn't really have any beef with her and regrets she tries to remove the curse. I think it's kind of just muddled this idea of like trying to make Maleficent a super sympathetic character when the thing that's great about her in the animated film is that she's just totally unrepentantly evil and just this complete force of badassness. 
But it gives you the most interesting idea in the film, which is at the end that the true love's kiss that awakens Aurora. Spoiler alert: if you if you've not seen Maleficent and you care about this whatsoever, but that's not the kiss of Prince Philip. Philip kisses Aurora; she doesn't wake up. But Maleficent gives her a little kiss on the head, like a regretful, rueful kiss, and that is the true love's kiss, because those guys have this whole relationship in this film. They're basically friends throughout most of the movie. So that was kind of an interesting idea. It felt kind of similar to, obviously, 2013 is when Frozen comes out, and that's a film where very much like the central idea of of what true love is comes from sisters and family relationships rather than from just some random dude you've just met. But the film overall, I think it's just a bit... uh, It just doesn't quite work. I like what they were trying to do, but it just doesn't come off. The tone is just very strange. It goes from being quite sweet and Disney-ish to then like weirdly dark, but not quite satisfying either. Sam, have you seen Maleficent? Yeah, I've got a similar take on it. A couple of things I thought worth pointing out. The Raven is a bloke in this. Yes, it is. Sam Riley. It's Ian Curtis from Joy Division, aka (laughs) Sam Riley, which is a strange choice. He also turns into a horse at points. She turns him into various animals. It's weird. And the good fairies, that upset me in this movie because they get absolutely shafted. They look hideous they're like tiny little cgi live action hybrid norm women they are horrific to look at and they're one of the first things you see in this movie is them flying in there and they've got these weird high-pitched voices and they're completely incompetent when they have to look after aurora and maleficent has to secretly chip in and fix their mistakes great actors as well you've got Imelda Staunton and Leslie Manville and Juno Temple are the three fairies and they just get completely yeah they they get the short end of the straw all around like these are our main characters in the original and they are kind of clumsy and sometimes self-centered like I say well-drawn well-rounded characters and I I don't know I think it's a little bit disrespectful we're trying to salvage our female villain here right and trying to turn that into a feminist narrative i don't know why in doing that we have to break down the female heroes of that film yes by all means take the character of the king and turn him into an antagonist deconstruct that but why do we have to do the same thing to these female heroes who i think could have served a similar role in this film without getting in the way of the maleficent character so i think overall yeah you see what they're trying to do i think it's important to reclaim these powerful female characters for the side of good because so many of the villains in disney movies are female characters who overstep their boundaries by being the most powerful figure in the film so you've got the queen from snow white and you've got cruella de vil and you've got ursula and they're always big and flamboyant and single and many of them in retrospect could be interpreted as queer coded i think it's important to make films where these characters aren't necessarily the villains but is maleficent the one you had to do it with and the next one of these movies which we'll probably be talking about in the next episode is cruella and again As of recording, I haven't seen that yet. I don't know if they're going to try and totally rehabilitate that character, but she kills dogs, man. And Maleficent's the mistress (laughs) of all evil. You could make one of these movies with Ursula, 100%, right? You could make one of these movies with the Queen from Snow White. There is lots of room in those characters to draw out more sympathetic sides of them, I think. Maleficent, what's the point, man? She's the mistress of all evil. Yeah, I am hopeful. I haven't seen Cruella yet. I'm actually seeing it very shortly as we record this. But I'm hopeful, and it does seem like they're not going to make her sympathetic, that they are going to just tell the story of this crazy flamboyant character who is 
a bad person and I'm completely down for that but I haven't seen the Maleficent sequel I might check it out at some point now that I've seen the first one I might as well I hear the sequel is kind of better in that they've got a bit of a an easier handle on the character and obviously not just having to do the Sleeping Beauty plot anymore but yeah color me intrigued and that is it for this week's class Join us again for our next seminar when we'll be rounding up every spotty dog we can get our grubby mitts on with 1961's 101 Dalmatians. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a little star rating on Apple Podcasts if that's what you use or whatever platform you listen on. If you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll curse all of your enemies in a flourish of purple smoke. No questions asked. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. See you later. I'm going to kip for a hundred years. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to draw all the powers of hell to curse a tiny baby. Thanks for listening. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you